this is the Sean Yankee Show. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweighed the dangers which are cited to justify it. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. Today, we've had a national tragedy. Two airplanes have crashed into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack. This episode of The Sean Yankee Show is being brought to you by the support of viewers like me. We realize the importance of independent media and truth in this time of mass deceit and propaganda. We have decided to fight for and support it to keep it alive. You can help us in this fight for truth. Contribute at patreon.com forward slash Sean Yankee. Thanks for coming to the show. It'll begin soon. Hey everybody, get in here. Welcome back to the Sean Yankee Show. I'm Sean, and no matter where you're at or when you're here, you are in the right place at the right time. So settle in and get comfortable because you picked a fantastic night to come to the show. Tonight on the Sean Yankee Show, it's Conspiracy Theories and Chill. My buddy Paul's coming over, and we're going to talk conspiracies. In fact, we're in the middle of a series breaking down one of the most important truth or documentaries of all time. Everything's a rich man's trick. We're on part two of an introduction to evil. So get in here, settle in, but first and foremost, smash them shits. I need you to do that. You got to hit like and share this out. That's very important. It really helps us. We're just a little independent show completely dependent on you guys to get out and be seen. So any support, any help you can give us, greatly appreciated. And I love to hear from you guys. So take part, comment, and participate in the show. And let me know what you think, but real important to smash them shits. If you're on Facebook, do it for the entire show. You can, you got like seven buttons and you can beat the hell out of them. But anywhere you're at, it's so important to hit that like. Because this show is one of the last havens to truth in a time of mass deception. We put the truth first here. We believe that if it can be destroyed by the truth, then it should be. Because it takes immense courage to be genuine in these confusing times. But I implore you, be brave and continue to hold on. Because the drop is coming. 
the bottom's going to fall out of the beast system. It's going to crumble to dust and a better world is on the horizon. So keep your head up and keep going. But we're going to be pulling back the veil. You know, if you just feel like things are wrong, you, you really can't put your finger on it. You just know that things are wrong and there's something going on. This is a great introduction. You're going to have a great time. So settle in here and get ready. But even if you're well in the know, it's good to refresh yourself on some of these things, you know, and inform yourself because we need individuals who are unafraid to stand up for their belief and lead, even when those beliefs go against the grain. You know, we need people who are willing to speak the truth even when it's inconvenient or unpopular to do so. And we need those who dare to be real and authentic, even when it's unpopular, which it almost always is, almost always. And that's what we're about. So welcome. And if that's you, you have found your people. Come on in, settle in. But like I said, hello to everyone, no matter where you're at, or when you're here, if you're watching later on, those are our biggest views, actually. So you're right on time. Please still participate. Let us know what you think and hit that like button. But hello to Sweet Ray, Sir Rat Bastard, Sam Clemens over there holding down Rumble. Thank you for doing that. That is our most important platform. Rumble, Rumble is the free speech, no censorship platform. You're here on Facebook and you want to comment, you want to go to speak your mind, come on over to Rumble. You won't go to Facebook jail. You won't go to Rumble jail. There is no Rumble jail. But uh, thank you guys for holding that down and everybody here on Facebook. And if you're here on Twitter, you guys have been quiet so far. But feel free to join in the conversation. But if you guys are ready, it is Wednesday night and we've got a lot to get into. We're breaking down an almost four hour documentary. And uh, let's just get into it. Wednesday night, it's time for conspiracy theories. Everybody, welcome back to Conspiracy Theories and Chill. Hey, Paul, I forgot to bring you up. How you doing? There I am. Yeah, there you is. How you was, doing, it was sir? scary, man. It was dark and cold. I was like, when is he going to take me out of this this loop? Yeah, I was leaving you in the in the in the no zone and <laughs> in the you loop. Were in, that, yeah, that you was... were in in, uh, in limbo. <laughs> but now you're here. How you doing? 
I like that banner. That is sweet. You like that? that That's is tonight's sweet. thumbnail. It kind of ha- includes everything that we're going to be getting, a little bit of everything we're going to be getting into. So we're on part two now of our breakdown of everything's a rich man's trick. Part L2O. In the first part, we got through 42 minutes. So we got a big chunk. And it mostly went into uh, the rise of Hitler and the rise of the Nazi party and what was really behind all that, the moneyed interests and uh, who profited off of it. Oh, so we haven't gotten into the birds aren't real part yet. I don't think this one's going to touch on birds aren't what? real. It's, it's it's not that big. You know, it's it's a introductory. It's an introduction true. to evil. True, true. Because like You're birds not aren't real. That's, out yeah, that's upper level shit yet. right there. That's, yeah. That's top that's level three. Stuff. That That's like uh, level three uh, Yankson type shit. Mm-hmm. That's about where you got to be at to know something like that. Uh, I swear I cannot share this show in the amount of time that I allow myself to do it. No, you need a longer intro. There it is. Yeah, I know. I need like a five minute intro. A lot of people do that. They have like a we'll be live soon and it goes on for like 10, 15 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. That's what sellout, uh, the sellout Meister does. He'll dance on. He has this pre-recorded dance where he dances on the screen for like ten minutes while he's waiting for people to get in. Who? Uh, AJ. Oh yeah, that's right. He does do that. He does. He does. He counts down from from one hundred from a minute. So he counts down from sixty, and then after that sixty is over, then he's got another sixty second. Um, pre you know pre-recorded thing where he's just dancing around on the screen and he's like you know doing the whole share and patreon and all that and then he gets to his show so it takes him like five minutes before he even starts the show yeah see so i i'm nice i don't make you guys sit through all of that we used to do about five minutes but really i need it because you know i got to share it out i can't expect you to share it as much as i do we need the extra time for shit smashing. Babels is here. Hey, Babels. Hey, Babels. And Gabe, if Gabe's here, hello, Gabe. Hey, He's always Gabe. holding it down, and he doesn't get enough attention. You know, you got to shout out Gabe every once in a while. The Gabe Meister. He's our biggest fan. The gabe I mean, we're close. The Rat Bastard wants to know if I've listened to Kid Rock's new song yet. Well, I don't know if it's new. It's We the People. Is that new? I had no clue. Is that a new Kid Rock jam? I don't even no, know. No, I haven't heard it. I, I'll listen to it after the show. I honestly forgot about it. It's been a real long time since I've been in, listened to, listened to rather, any Kid Rock. Or anything so. new for that matter. Well, I don't know. If it's well, good, we, I'll, we I don't to WAP. it because it's new. We're, we're good with WAP. I mean, we, we listen to that one a lot. Who? Uh, WAP, W-A-P. Oh, that was Song of the Year. That's just one song. That was a brilliant song. Yes, yes. It was a very, very good song. It was very artistic. A lot of yes. quality and art to it. The Not Western like Triad in a small town. I think it stands for Western Appalachian Peninsula. Something like that. Yes. Not like that racist song. Oh, try that yeah, in a no. small town. Yeah, try that shit at a campground. Yeah. 
Yeah, that that song is unacceptable. Super racist. Super racist. You look like well, you're a little sweaty tonight. I I tried hitting the bong. Oh, no. The bong makes me cough my lungs out, <laughs> and then it makes me sweat like I'm in a fucking sauna. It, it, it'll do that. It'll run you through the ringer sometimes. I, dude, it, it it really does. Well, the stuff that I have is harsher than what I usually get anyway. That is what you were saying. You got you some old Mexican brickweed. Well, it's not quite that bad, but it's pretty harsh. <laughs> and I've been spoiled, so like my throat's taking a beating. Trying to save money though, you know, I got to raise some funds. Gee, gotta get gotta get money gathered up, so I gotta save money. We should get an OnlyFans page where we show pictures of OnlyFans, like ceiling fans and 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 the likes, the swivel fans. You know, those are pretty sweet. There, there's even old school fans, like the big metal ones. Yeah, those are neat. OnlyFans, but. We have a lot to get into. Oh, Danan um, brings up a good point real quick before we get into that. Uh, drink. Uh, she says drink a hot drink when you smoke. I drink a cold drink, but either way, keep be keep your throat wet while you're hitting that bong because otherwise, man, that boy oh, will do. put you through the I ring. Do, and it's got ice in the tube. <laughs> oh, like, no. You don't want the no, ice. You don't want why? it cold. That's what's no, choking yeah, you, you out. No, it's not. No, it does choke you when it ain't cold, too. It's It's less when it's cold. Okay, not for me, but that's yeah, just... A... For me, it's less. It, it, when it's not ice in there, I, I just choke the shit out of it. <laughs> the ice really helps me. I guess I'm the opposite. For you guys, it's warm drinks. But... No, for everybody likes the ice in it. I'm like, I'm very weird where I don't like the ice in it. It just, if for some reason, it's like it really opens my lungs, the ice, the cold air, you know? Um, if you look at my pipe, though, it's got these cool little things here that these indents that are actually made to hold the ice cubes above the water, so the ice cubes don't go into the water. I think we have the exact same bong. Mine has those indents too. Does, Does it? yours That's say cool. King Volcano on it? Mine says nothing. It's just got like the Tree oh, okay. of Life. Well, we got the same bong, I think. I but, think it's yeah, the same design. Just you can't yeah. see it. There's mine. There it is. Same. Same shit. I like it. Here comes the hail. I know. I'm try try to figure out how to segue into these, but it's always super awkward. You know, I'm trying to figure out how to set up where we're at because we're in a series. Let's do a quick um, part two. Let's do a quick synopsis, like a 10-second synopsis of what we um, made. I tried that earlier. Last week. I tried that earlier. So last week, we were we, when we started it up, it was the beginning of the show, and they were um, talking about Germany and everything that led to the Germany, and that's where we let off. But it was it was literally um, the, the um, all the bankers, the money men, everybody that was involved. And if you missed it, you should probably rewatch it. Gia. Mm-hmm. So let's get into it. We'll start back up with Everything's a Rich Man's Trick. We're at the 42-minute mark. The link is in the description for anybody that wants to watch the full video. But do that later. We're breaking it down right now. Profit by him. Profit by him. 
In school, we are taught that the Allies defeated Nazi Germany in World War II. This is not true. The Nazis won the war because the real Nazis, the rich, played on both sides. That's what a rich businessman does. He arranges things so that he is well thought of by both sides. So then whoever wins, he wins and his money is safe. Now a lot of people will still think it is simply ludicrous to suggest the Second World War was a phony war. They are bound to say that no one who was there at the time thought it was a phony war. Really. A new baby, 200 gross of buckles, unlimited petrol and all the whiskey you want. You're sitting pretty, aren't you, Holden? Yes, it is a lovely war. Well, wouldn't you if you were in my place? Wouldn't everybody? Doesn't everybody? It was a blasted phony anyway. I'm a bit tired of that. Tired of what? This phony war business. Well, isn't it? No, it's not. I've just come out of hospital after ten days in an open boat off the Pharaohs and I'm sick and tired of blokes like you with soft jobs ashore. Come outside. Now, don't be silly. I've lost two fingers off that hand, but I'm going to take you outside and knock your block off with my right. Oh, take it easy. There's no need for that. I'm sorry, I apologise. I'll come outside if you insist. That won't do any good. It's not his fault. It's the fault of all of us. You make me sick. All of you. It may be a phony war to you, but it's not to all the boys at sea. It never has been. Now, obviously, the British, and the Dutch in particular, will have a very hard time accepting that their royal family profited from Nazi concentration camp slave labour. But if you go online, there is so much about this on the internet now. It's become plain that historians are more and more proving that those days were really all about the Western world's rich coming together to fund a Nazi war machine which was meant to protect them from the Soviets. The Duke of Edinburgh practically admitted this when he said, in those days we were anti-communist because the Russians killed half my bloody family. And when this cabal of secret Nazis got together to discuss how they were going to pay for this Nazi war machine, because rich people never accept a loss, they hired a psychopath, Hitler, who they knew would go along with their building concentration camps so that slave labour would pay for all the planes and the tanks and the guns. And you can see in the more intelligent movies from that period, like Hitchcock's Saboteur, that the artists and writers of that time knew the rich were fascist and completely understood what they were really up to. Why is it that you sneer every time you refer to this country? You've done pretty well here, I don't get it. No, you wouldn't. You're one of the ardent believers, a good American. Oh, there are millions like you, people that plod along without asking questions. I hate to use the word stupid, but it seems to be the only one that applies. The great masses, the moron millions. Well, there are a few of us who are unwilling to just troop along. A few of us who are clever enough to see that there's much more to be done than just live small, complacent lives. A few of us in America who desire a more profitable type of government. When you think about it, Mr. Kane, 
the competence of totalitarian nations is much higher than ours. They get things done. Yeah, they get things done. They bomb cities, sink ships, torture and murder so you and your friends can eat off of gold plate. It's a great philosophy. I neither intend to be bombed nor sunk, Mr. Kane. That's why I'm leaving now. And if things don't go right for you, if uh, we should win, then I'll come back. Perhaps I can get what I want then. Power. Yes. I want that as much as you want your comfort or your job or, or that girl. We all have different tastes, as you can see. Only I'm willing to back my tastes with the necessary force. Where was the Mafia while all this was going on? Well, a great deal which historians have learned recently, especially from sources like Double Cross, the book written by Sam Giancarlo's brother, has made it clear that the Mafia was much the same as the so-called German economic miracle and the American finance Nazi war machine in concentration camps. The mob in reality was a very different animal from the one portrayed by the movies and the media. American feature films have tended to focus on the exploits of gangsters like Richard Kane, the famous crime-busting Chicago cop who was planted in the police force to be a spy for Giancana, and hoods like Charles Nicoletti and Milwaukee Phil Alderisio, two of his favourite hitmen who built their own hitmobile so they could shoot people from the back of a moving car. Amongst many other atrocities this pair committed was one in which they forced the head of Billy McCarthy into a vice and squeezed until his eyeball popped out, an incident which a certain American film director felt was so entertaining he included it in one of his movies. What most people have failed to realise, however, is that in most cases the Mafia chieftains who actually ran organised crime did not approve, generally speaking, of these acts of gross brutality. Not that they gave a damn about morals, but the cleverest amongst them, like Paul the Waiter Rica, realised that sensationalised events like the St Valentine's Day Massacre produced public outrage and a crackdown on their illegal activities. Rico realised that the effectiveness of mobsters like Diamond Joe Esposito came from keeping a low profile. And it was the Mafia bosses who learned this lesson best, Santos Traficante and Sam Giancana in particular, who in later years became the most successful. Even today, few Americans appreciate the extent to which their country was being controlled by organised crime in the 1930s. The mob were in total control of Hollywood because all the union labour needed to make films, carpenters, set construction, catering, they were all under the control of the mob. In particular, the control of the Teamsters Union, the drivers and haulage people who made essential deliveries to absolutely everyone, meant that virtually all American business was caught in the web of mafia racketeering. Studio bosses like Harry Cohn, Louis B. Mayer and the Warner Brothers knew they had to play along to get anything done at all. The big studio heads, like all rich businessmen, found they were forced to become friends with Mafia Dons. And the individual who exploited this situation most effectively was a gangster few people have ever heard of, Murray the Camel Humphreys. Generally speaking, the ethnically Italian gangsters of this period were coarse, brutal and, most importantly, ignorant men. They had no education. 
They couldn't hold an intelligent conversation because they'd spent no time in school. Don Colleon, I am honored and grateful that you have invited me to your daughter's wedding. On the day of your daughter's wedding. This made doing business with refined and sophisticated entrepreneurs difficult, not to say embarrassing. And Sam Giancana was quick to spot this. So whenever a business deal needed to be made by someone with style and sophistication, he would send along his silver-tongued Welshman, Murray the Camel, so-called because he was known for being sartorial and for cutting a dash in expensive camel hair coats. Humphreys became a crucial figure during the pre-war period because his contact with the luminaries of Hollywood meant he received invitations from senior politicians who wanted to rub shoulders with stars like Clark Gable, George Raft, Cary Grant, Gary Cooper, Marilyn Monroe and Frank Sinatra, all of whom were mafia-controlled and used by the mob as bagmen, moving colossal sums of money around the country, because Giancana cynically realised the authorities were too starstruck to ever check their luggage. He even used a priest for the same purpose, who he referred to as Father Cash. And just as the priest was happy to take his percentage, so the politicians, who Giancana always maintained were the easiest to corrupt, were happy to do the same. In Esposito's time, he had boasted of buying votes for Calvin Coolidge. By the time of World War II, Sam Giancana was boasting to his younger brother, we own the White House. He was adamant that every state governor, congressman and senior judge in the country was on the take, and the mob's most spectacular success, as they sought control over all the big players, was their corrupting of FBI director J. Edgar Hoover. It's become fairly widely known in recent years that Hoover was a transvestite homosexual. What is less well known is the elaborate scheme he dreamed up for accepting mafia bribes. What he used to do was to go to the $2 window at the racetrack where he was photographed many times by the press to give himself a clean, upstanding image. What the pressmen didn't know was that he always took along a crooked emissary who placed huge bets which ran into the thousands at another window on races which were fixed by the mob boss Frank Costello. By keeping Hoover supplied with millions in winnings and holding on to compromising photographs of the FBI chief having sex with his lover, Clyde Tolson, which several CIA agents claim they've seen, the Mafia had American law enforcement entirely under their control. So the question then is, what do you do with that kind of power? The answer is that when you're the American Mafia, you routinely wipe out what they call do-gooders. This is how organized crime has influenced American society for nearly a century. If a decent man becomes a rising star in politics and looks as if he might try to make a better life for ordinary people, they simply kill him as a matter of routine. And in the book they wrote together, Chuck and Sam Giancana Jr. are at pains to point out that a classic early case of this practice was the assassination of Anton Shermack. Shermack was a democratic politician who had tried to crack down on Al Capone's bootlegging operations. Many felt he would go on to become a great president himself until he was shot while on stage with FDR by Giuseppe Zangara. After the murder, Zangara claimed it was a political act and he ought to be entitled to clemency because he simply hated all rich people. 
But this was actually what he'd simply been told to say by the mob, who were using him as a fall guy. When he went to the electric chair, Sam Giancana turned to his brother and expressed his pleasure at how nice and neat the whole affair had been. And he further explained that choosing a patsy to wipe out a politician who was a do-gooder was something the Italian mafia had been doing forever. It was a practice as old as the Sicilian hills. And he was amazed at how the mafia kept getting away with it. Because you really would think people would catch on. This was 1935. You have a decent chief executive, murdered, in broad daylight, shot by a patsy, who was later killed himself by the authorities. Does this sound familiar? However, even in Shermack's time, the mob could not be said to be in complete control of American life. Because while they controlled the streets through their influence over politics and the justice system, they were not yet in control of the United States military or its mainstream media. Tragically, this all started to change with a series of events which began with the scuttling of the SS Normandy by a Manhattan-based Nazi agent. This was February the 9th, 1942. And having just joined the war, the United States was trying to keep its allies supplied with vital war material using convoys which were loaded on the waterfront and sailed almost every day out of New York Harbour. As everyone knows, many fell prey to the wolf packs of German U-boats and the Normandy had been designed for much greater speed specifically so that she could outrun them. When she fell to sabotage, it was a colossal blow to the Allied war effort and in response, a naval intelligence officer Anthony Marslow, decided to enlist the help of the New York Mafia because he knew they were in control of all commercial activity on the docks. The subterfuge by foreign intelligence agents ceased, but the price America paid was calamitous because getting the Mafia's help meant getting permission from the boss of bosses, Lucky Lucanio. It is one of history's great ironies that the United States government went crawling to the Mafia for help at a moment when the mob themselves had just been severely weakened and could have been crushed altogether by an administration with enough political will. The notorious Lucanio had just started a 40-year prison sentence in Great Meadow Penitentiary, and most of his Sicilian gangsters back home were already behind bars, having been caught up in Mussolini's Mafia purge. Being himself Italian, Mussolini knew there was only one way to deal with the Mafia, and when he came to power, he ordered his iron prefect, Cesare More, to simply lock up all the Mafia families in Sicily, which wasn't exactly difficult because everybody knew who they were. Of course, after the Allied invasion of Sicily, Marsley then compounded his error by choosing Sicilian Americans like New York Mayor Charles Poletti and OSS officer Joseph Russo, whose father was born in Corleone, to head AMGOT, the Allied military government, whose job it was to restore community cohesion on the island. And of course, their way of doing this was not only to let all the mafiosi out of jail, they even made known mob bosses like Genco Russo and Don Calogero Vizzini into the heads of local government and gave them full civilian and military power over the island. So this was the accident of history through which the Mafia began its relationship with American military intelligence. It was a catastrophe for Italy, which has been ruled over by organised crime ever since. It was a catastrophe for Sicily, which suffered a brutal murder every three days in the post-war period, 
and it was a catastrophe for America, which saw many once vibrant communities, particularly in New Jersey, have the heart ripped out of them by mafia extortion and drug dealing. Lucky Luciano was deported after being released from jail and having found a kindred spirit in another secret organization, the newly created Central Intelligence Agency, he was then able to combine the activities of organized crime, particularly international drug running, with smuggling of American-made weapons. This unholy alliance gave the world its first ever pirates who flew aeroplanes. That's what these people became, pirates with aeroplanes. The CIA became the world's primary import-export of narcotics and used the colossal profits to fuel wars around the world, thereby enabling their friends in the military-industrial complex to sell yet more weapons. Under the disguise of liberal democracy, these men, who had financed Hitler, became the enemies of liberty and democracy on a planet-wide basis. And as if to underline their Nazi credentials, they also hired all of the former German Nazi intelligence officers, like Reinhard Galen, who were out of a job at the end of the war and brought them into the fold at the beginning of the Cold War, even though they were perfectly well aware that these men had committed genocide and should have been prosecuted as war criminals. Their attitude, quite clearly, was that as they had paid for Nazi Germany, they were entitled to pick over its carcass in any way they chose. This was yet another political catastrophe for the United States. Because these were the people who put together the notorious Operation Paperclip, which rounded up all of the Nazi rocket scientists, like Werner von Braun, and put them to work for their new American Nazi owners to give them, for the first time in human history, ICBMs with nuclear warheads. They became the first men ever to have the power to destroy the whole world at the touch of a button. And it was clear to many observers at the time that it all rather went to their heads. I can no longer sit back and allow communist infiltration, communist indoctrination, communist subversion, and the international communist conspiracy to sap and impurify all of our precious bodily fluids. They saw themselves as giants who were looking down and laughing upon this planet of tiny fools who were stupid enough to go on and on killing each other while they sold arms to both sides throughout the Second World War. Fock Wolf aeroplanes, which bombed American soldiers, were manufactured by IT&T. Allied sailors were drowning in a freezing North Atlantic because their convoys were sunk by guns of Nazi battleships, which swivelled on American-made ball bearings. American soldiers were crushed under the wheels of tanks and trucks made by Henry Ford and John Rockefeller, and gassed to death by the same people. Sam Giancana took the trouble to explain how this cynical process worked by composing just one terse, simple sentence which his brother wrote down for posterity. People give their lives, he said, just so a few fat cats can make a killing. And this was precisely what Spedley Butler had tried to explain to the world with his book, War is Just a Racket. At the war's end, the rich elite found fortune continuing to smile on them. Firstly, they were able to control the utter farce of the Nuremberg trials, which should have hanged every single American merchant banker and leading industrialist. As it was, their contribution to World War II remained hidden from public scrutiny, and they were even allowed to gerrymander light sentences for their German Nazi friends, like Jean Marchacht, who got off with just a few years and later retired as a billionaire. But best of all was that the one man who might have been a check to their power 
passed away as soon as the war was over. And with President Roosevelt gone, and their first Nazi glove puppet, Hitler, also deceased, it became necessary for Prescott Bush to find another young politician to sponsor. In true American fashion, he decided to advertise. He placed an ad in the LA Times, which candidly explained that a group of rich businessmen were seeking a young, ambitious, ad. immoral, and most definitely malleable politician who might one day run for president. The ad was deliberately worded in this cynical way because they knew that only an evil, slimy, and completely incorrigible little creep would ever dream of applying <laughs> for the position. That was what they wanted, and that was what they got, in the shape of a certain Richard Nixon, here being congratulated on his success by his new master, Prescott Bush. Answer Not long after ad. this picture was taken in 1947, yeah, the Nixon ad. engaged the, the service of a Jewish being gangster who like, was working for Sam called Jacob Rubenstein, <laughs> a man whom the world oh, would one day come to know as Jack Ruby. Bang. Having bought themselves a new political puppet, Bang. this nefarious band of 20th century robber barons now took stock of their situation. The Hitler Project, as this Richard Lee called it, could hardly have turned out very much better. Their businesses had made colossal profits. Prescott had got his Union Bank back. The communist menace they you know, so wanted to contain had almost sunk back in the Middle Ages with the ravages of war. And best shit. of all, was that they had now achieved the very world domination which Hitler had dreamed yes. about. Very high up. They knew that in this new age of modern telecommunications and high-speed jet travel, they had become the first group of robber barons in human history to dominate the entire globe because they realized there was now absolutely no one left who could stop them from doing whatever they wanted to do next. However, they also realized that bombed out and dilapidated Europe would not be able to bear another war for many decades. This was why they now decided that their obscene business profits could only keep coming in if they moved their game of phony war into the third world. And this was how the CIA came to instigate conflict throughout the Middle East, Southeast Asia and Central America. Chuck Giancana well remembers a conversation which he had with his Mafia boss brother Sam during this period in which he questioned him with genuine anxiety about the communist menace spreading throughout the world. The TV news was painting a sinister picture of a Soviet enemy with millions of fifth columnists, which was intent upon taking over the entire planet. Hadn't he heard of the domino theory and wasn't he worried about it? In response, Sam Giancana simply smiled at his kid brother's naivety and he asked him, didn't he realize that the United States, by which he meant the shadow government, not the official one, wanted to take over the world as well? And that the whole idea of communism was just the excuse they were using to do it? He told him that in China they had already succeeded in getting a member of the Chinese Mafia, a brutal gangster called Mao Zedong, into power just so they could sell more cigarettes in Asia. Communism was just their excuse. And it was pretty much the same story in the Philippines with a crooked politician the Mafia levered into power called Ferdinand Marcos. As for the United States, Big Brother Sam explained that the Fat Cats were fully aware that Americans will do anything for patriotism. Hence, you must always provide them with an enemy, a boogeyman. They won't overwork themselves just to make huge profits for fat cats, for any other reason. So new enemies had to be found or created. This is what Joe McCarthy's Reds Under the Bed Scare had really been all about. This is fucking And they sad. used the same excuse in Laos, Chile, Guatemala, El Salvador, Iran, Honduras, Vietnam and Cuba. 
If a small country refused to go along with American business interests, which basically meant with the rights of Western multinationals to pay slave wages to third-world peasant farmers growing commodities like tobacco or sugar or fruit, they simply labelled them as communist, assassinated the democratically elected head of state with teams recruited from their secret societies, the Central Intelligence Agency and the Mafia, and put in a man favourable to their interests, as with the Shah in Iran. Simple. And even more to this, Giancarlo explained to his brother that the political game at home had to be played in the same way as the phony war game abroad. The lesson was that a businessman always protects his interests by playing both sides. Yep. Sam Giancarlo knew that the Second World War had been exactly the same as all the CIA's covert wars during the 1950s. They were conducted in order to make more money for the super-rich. Because in every case... They were selling weapons and fuel to both sides, just as they had the Germans. On the American mainland, this cynical attitude manifested itself in the way the gangsters supported the campaigns of both leading candidates in every political head-to-head -head mm, in order to make sure that whoever got elected, he was always their man and on their side. So this was the real political world which the young Senator John F. Kennedy became a part of in 1950s America. It was a world ruled by a super-rich cabal of secret Nazis who had built the fascist war machine and concentration camps purely to protect themselves and their money from socialist Russia. Now, I'm just going to stop for a second because these people have never been removed from power. They're still in power. They're still in power. These same people, same bloodlines, same families, all in the same positions of power and, and, and moving forward in the same plan, like a fucking python, slowly creeping in from all different angles. It's it's same families, all that shit. Um, and then when you get even deeper, you know, how we... Obama's related to the Bushes who are related to yada 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 and down the line um, but does that guy right there on the bottom left with the long beard does he not look like in, like he's inbred like because back in those days the reason why they looked so weird the richest families in the world the elites is because they had to keep the bloodline pure I'm sure you've heard that phrase before mm-hmm these are psychopaths, Sean. Well, they are, and they're bred to be. They and use uh, mind control te techniques on their own children. They don't, they don't even need it. They're inbred. They don't even need all that shit. All they, right, they, well, they could be inbred and use trauma-based <laughs> mind control on their own children, because they do. That's they use trauma-based mind control to make their children psychopaths. And so all they the will other not have any remorse. Yeah, and, and all the exper other experiments, too, like all the other shit that they do. Like the Operation Phoenix with Basiago, but that's another story. They do but a that ton dude of on the bottom left. Their own children. They do. Yes. Yep. That was my whole point. But that dude on the bottom left, dude, he does not look right. He does not, dude. A lot of these people were literally in. I think the guy people. on the top left is creepy as fuck looking. With the uh, pipe. No, right next to the guy with the pipe, right above your beard guy. That guy right there in the corner, top left. Yeah, he's holding the pipe. No, 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 no. Not the pipe guy. Right next to the pipe guy. The Rockefeller. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, look at those fucking eyes, dude. He's creepy. Oh, my goodness. 
All right. Well, I was just trying, you know, to help yeah. anyone that's not seeing it understand that that these, these are bloodlines the are in control. They use these different organizations like the CIA, and then they offshoot shit that they have to to the private sector, like uh, the criminal organizations, like the mafia, to get all the things done that they want to do. They they work around however they have to, but they just consider it business. Like Sam Giacarno was talking about, he he goes out to dinner with these people. They're on the same level. They just do different shit. They all sit down and, and eat together and are friends. Yep. They run everything. And like that guy was saying, too, he said that uh, they they will take out, this is his words, you know, he said they will take out people who, uh, politicians who try to make a difference in their communities. Well, how, what does that sound like? That's what makes me not believe anyone that seems legit that rises to prominence. Yep. I have to wonder because they wouldn't let you do that. And we got to have this conversation. People need to hear this. Everybody thinks the voting system, the politicians, everything. No, my hero could never do anything bad. You know? People need voting to hear is this. an act of consent. The system is rigged. Voting itself is an act of consent in the slave system. It is. It is, in my opinion, only mine. And but. just like what it was just telling you, they play on your patriotism. They do. They, they do. They how... use the things that you care about against you. It isn't that those things aren't important. It's that they're manipulating you with them. And they, they do it with the news and all that shit, too, the mainstream media, when they would, they would dog people that weren't registering to go to war. And they would make you look like you were the biggest piece of shit ever through movies and fucking shows and the news and everybody. And then your family would get all of your case, kind of like the COVID, right? And then your family would get all of your case because you didn't sign up to register to go to war. They know right. what they they're pulling. They pull on your heartstrings and they pull on your values. Those, they're not their values. Exactly. And they get you to fight for a lie. Or to defend a lie because they sell it with your beliefs. It's beautifully packaged, but it's a lie. And that's yeah. where we're at right now. So we're getting ready to get into someone trying to stand against this cabal. Yeah. Someone that manipulated and tricked this cabal. John F. Kennedy. And what happens to somebody that does something like that? Having avoided prosecution for the greatest crime in human history, they were confident that they could kill anyone and get away with it, particularly if it was someone who might interfere with their power to instigate phony wars in order to make huge fortunes by lending money and selling weapons to both sides. The war in which he himself had bravely fought was a sham, and even John F. Kennedy did not understand this. Or perhaps we should say that he didn't fully understand what was going on. He and his younger brother Bobby were certainly all too keenly aware of the extent to which their country was in the grip of organised crime because their own father, the patriarch Joseph P. Kennedy, had made his personal fortune from running illegal liquor during the days of Prohibition, activities which earned him the nickname Bootlegger Joe. Experienced people are aware that the tendency of each new generation to reject the ideas of the previous generation 
is an abiding characteristic in human affairs, and it is perfectly plain that with Jack and Bobby it had the effect of making both men highly principled. Their own father had associated with crooks and gangsters, and it was quite clear from their style and their outlook that they had made a commitment to make up for the sins of their father by rejecting this sinister world of hoods and crooks and corrupt politicians, by being honest and decent. If you take a look at any group photo from the early days, it's clear these men are being determinedly clean-cut, with the accent heavily on the clean part. They knew their father's generation were dirty. It couldn't be more obvious that they were determined to be the opposite. The question was, how were they going to free themselves and their country from the entanglements of the crooked politicians and the psychopathic mafia dons who together were controlling the whole of American life like some multi-legged fascist octopus? How they were going to pull this off was something they were discussing ad nauseam when, in the late 1950s, they found out their father was in big trouble. A contract had been taken out on Joe Kennedy's life by the Purple Gang, the Jewish Mafia of New York, who had accused him of swindling them out of a fortune. Joe Kennedy was really scared, and he turned for help toward the one man in North America who he knew had the power to get the contract called off, Sam Giancana. Giancana had done business with Kennedy for years, so he agreed to help, but... He wanted something for it. He was all too aware of Joe's political ambitions for his son and of JFK's outstanding good looks. He wanted assurances that if Jack one day made it to the White House, Joe Kennedy would see to it that the heat the two brothers had been trying to turn up on the Mafia would be turned down. And, according to Chuck and Sam Giancana Jr., Joseph P. Kennedy, just to save his own skin, agreed. Can you tell us anything about any of your operations? Or you just uh, like, giggle every time I ask you a question? The client answer because I honestly believe my answer might tend to incriminate me. I thought only little girls giggled with the Gene <laughs> In this way, a very confused situation was created because Sam Giancana, the very kind of mob boss whom the Kennedys had been fighting so hard through the McClellan Committee to put in jail, now thought that they should and would be grateful to him. It was this expectation and this misunderstanding which now led Giancana to try to draw the Kennedys more and more into his dark world, something which he appeared to be succeeding with in the way that first Peter Lawford and then Frank Sinatra established relationships with both men. Lawford married Kennedy's sister. Everyone is voting for Jack. Sinatra was putting together campaigning jingles, and it must have seemed to many insiders at the time that when Sam Giancana went around boasting that, as usual, he had everything under control, and that when Jack got to the White House, it was going to be a dream ticket for the Mafia, that it must all be true. His boys appeared to be partying together. And those who were in the know were aware that JFK had at least some sort of relationship with Judith Campbell Exner, Sam Giancana's girlfriend. What we haven't known until now is that JFK was hoodwinking Giancana all along. The role that Judy Campbell played was mostly that of a go-between. What Kennedy was doing through her was giving Giancana FBI reports on mob bosses to make him think that law enforcement were not all that well informed about the Mafia scams and their movements, nor even terribly interested. What Giancana did not know was that the FBI reports he was receiving were carefully selected and most definitely incomplete. Kennedy was not helping Giancana. 
He was not keeping him in the picture. What he was doing was pulling the wool over his eyes. For the first time in his life, Samji and Kana was perplexed, and he became more confused when there was a sudden freezing over of relations. JFK abruptly ended his relationship with Sinatra, and Judy Campbell suddenly found the White House were refusing her calls. Even more to this, Giancarlo's limitations were shown up in the way he completely failed to comprehend that Kennedy truly was decent and honest. He apparently had many conversations with Murray the Camel Humphreys around this time, in which both were reassuring each other that Kennedy's white knight lifestyle was just a political game to make him look good. Quite clearly, this cynical outlook was the product of living in their dark and corrupt world. They had never known an honest and decent man, because in the Mafia, there's no such thing. There is no record of what was said during the three meetings which JFK had with Giancarlo and his father at the Fontainebleau Hotel just prior to the 1960 general election. But it does now seem that in this most titanic battle of wits between the craftiest criminal in America and the most brilliant politician the world had ever seen, Kennedy had won. He had played the Mafia at their own game and played it better. Why did John F. Kennedy do this? Because he must have known just what a dangerous game he was playing. There certainly appears to be no doubt, now that we ourselves are aware of the all-pervading influence of organised crime in America at that time, that this brave and decent and honest man had realised that he could never get rid of the Mafia and their dirty fascist friends in politics, industry and banking without first enlisting their help. He had to trick them. And with this new understanding, we can now see, for the first time, with the correct perspective, the motives, characters, intrigues and diverse political interests which were gathering against President Kennedy when he took the oath of office. Organised crime were fearful of JFK before he ascended to power because the shrewdest amongst them were getting a sense that he had outfoxed and outmaneuvered the all-powerful Mafia bosses. But the big mistake researchers have made in the past has been to not understand that every American oligarch, the big oil men, the captains of industry, the merchant bankers, the intelligence chiefs, were all crooks and gangsters as well. The biggest crook in the land was the head of law enforcement, J. Edgar Hoover. This is what historians have failed to understand until now. When JFK appointed his 32-year-old kid brother to the post of Attorney General, these people collectively froze. It now fully hit home that JFK really was honest and decent. It hit home that he wanted to make his country as honest and decent as he was, and that he actually believed that with the help of his energetic and determined crime-busting brother that he could do it. His attitude, of course, stood in marked contrast to the man whom Kennedy was saddled with as his running mate. Anyone who has any doubts about the moral rectitude of the average American politician of that time has only to look at the career of Lyndon Baines Johnson to see that, generally speaking, they were worse than the Mafia itself. From his involvement with the Box 13 scandal and through all of his dealings with his crooked Texan business associate, Billy Solestes, LBJ proved again and again that he was every bit as unscrupulous as any mob boss and willing to do absolutely anything for power. This was a man who'd had his own sister, Josepha, murdered by his personal hitman, a highly intelligent and psychopathic killer named Malcolm Wallace, who later shot dead the golf professional, John Douglas Kinzer. When this case came to court, it revealed to the American public how totally corrupt the justice system had become, 
because LBJ was able to get Wallace off with a five-year suspended sentence. Found guilty of murder one, he walked free that very day. This was the sort of corruption which was running rife through the American political system when Fidel Castro overthrew the right-wing government of Fulgencio Bantista Trudeau. in 1959. Few people are aware that by this advanced stage in their relationship, the CIA and the Mafia were together employing the Giancana tactic of supporting both sides in a war. For many years beforehand, they had been supporting Castro, and not just the Batista regime, as many think, by smuggling in both arms and mercenaries to aid the peasant farmers. One of these mercenaries, an Italian-American called Frank Fiorini, later came to play a pivotal role both in the assassination and subsequent cover-up under his assumed name, Frank Sturgis. Sturgis and Castro were photographed Pesci. together many times during the Cuban Revolution. It does look like Pesci. But after Castro enlisted the help of the Russian Soviets, Sturgis turned against him. Like many in the CIA mafia network, he felt double-crossed when Castro closed the island's casinos and nationalized all Cuban business. He therefore joined forces with men like Bernard Barker, Batista's former secret police chief, and other Cuban expats who had fled en masse to Miami, Florida, and who now sat together on the American mainland as a very disgruntled and highly politicized splinter group. Of course, to the American Nazis, who had bankrolled Hitler, this was intolerable. It was a commercial disaster. Coca-Cola had made millions in easy profits using dirt-cheap Cuban sugar grown by dirt-poor Cuban peasants. They were now being told by an upstart third-world dictator that they would have to pay for sugar at the normal market rate. And the Mafia were losing millions every single day from the loss of illegal gambling. America's Nazi shadow government therefore decided that someone was going to have to mould this loosely knit group of disgruntled anti-Castro Cubans into a crack invasion force to retake the island. Having put their heads together, Dulles and Harriman and Richard Bissell decided this would be an excellent job for Prescott's eldest son, George Herbert Walker Bush. A chance for him to prove himself, along with one of his Texas oil business associates, Jack Alston Crichton. Together, these two recruited and trained the Cubans for several terrorist groups known as Operation 40, Alpha 66, ZR Rifle and Operation Mongoose. Renegade bands of merciless assassins who would kill Castro and who could later be counted on to eliminate any other third world leaders who dared to interfere with American commercial interests. It was this diverse and unsavoury stream of political intrigue which produced President Kennedy's first great political crisis, the Bay of Pigs, in 1962. By this time, JFK was well aware that the CIA was something much more like a private firm or a family. He wasn't surprised when they invaded Cuba without his permission, because he knew they were totally out of control. His antipathy led him to cancel the promised air support and inevitably the invasion failed. The anti-Castro Cubans were mostly captured and Kennedy then tried to add insult to injury by ordering J. Edgar Hoover's FBI to close down the camps where the Cubans were trained. He even allowed Khrushchev, the Soviet leader, to inspect the camps to see they were closed so this could never happen again. Having only just escaped with his life at the Bay of Pigs, it was pretty clear that Frank Sturgis was more than a little annoyed. He was 
scared because Khrushchev says, don't do this or we're going to do that. You know, so he didn't do it. And he deserted the Bay of Pigs. I was involved in the Bay of Pigs. You got a lot of people who were friends of mine that were killed in the Bay of Pigs. And I resent that. Don't play political games with me. I'm a military man. I'm a soldier. I go fight. But damn it, if I risk my ass out there and I'm getting shot at, I don't want some stupid-ass politician to go ahead and make deals behind my back where my people or maybe myself are going to get killed. I don't like that. This, then, is how the stage was set for the Kennedy assassination. And when one remembers the colossal number of ruthless and hideously brutal men who had created this situation, it's perhaps a little ironic that a peripheral figure in the cast of characters who actually put the plot together was an attractive young woman. 19-year-old Marita Lorenz's love affair with Fidel Castro and her subsequent recruitment as a CIA assassin by Frank Sturgis to kill him is a very well-known story because it was made into a feature film. In spite of her failure to kill the Cuban leader, Lorenz continued to associate with the assassination squads trained by the CIA, and it was largely her testimony in the Spotlight magazine trial after a skilful cross-examination by Mark Lane, which gave us a window through which we can now see who really participated in the Kennedy assassination and who was really behind it all. First of all, after the Bay of Pigs invasion, Kennedy had fired Alan Dulles, Richard Bissell, and General Charles Cable. I just want to stop for a second, as we should every once in a while. It's hard to get in on this one. The guy packs a lot of shit in, and he moves pretty quickly. But right now, they're getting ready to get into the Kennedy assassination and how they pulled that off and who pulled it off. And I think his is one of the best breakdowns of this I've ever seen. Mm. The most detailed and in depth, but you know, I, I'm not saying that I agree I, with everything I in this movie. I think ours was the most detailed and. In-depth. I said one of. Oh, okay, okay, all right. That's what I'm saying because right. that's what I was setting it up with. That I'm not saying I agree with everything in this movie. Like he was fawning over Kennedy. I wouldn't give Kennedy that much that credit. much credit. No, I do think he did try to upset the system. I don't I, think he was some shining example of purity. Exactly. You know? you know what I mean? Yeah. But this is a great documentary for opening the I, door. I almost get the impression of um, it, it just fucking showing each other their balls. You know, like who's the tougher guy and, and neither one of them will fucking back down. I don't see it as he came into office and I'm going to take out the mafia and the FBI and the CIA and all that shit. I see it as he got into office, they had pushback, and, and the pushback was going back and forth. And, and they were trying to see who the tougher guy was. I'm tougher than you. I'm the president. Oh, yeah? Well, I'm fucking Bush, dumbass. Well, him and his brother did step on enough toes that they, they on toes. had to be taken out. A lot of toes. Made an example of. Now, his brother, on the other hand, I don't think Bobby really understood as much as Jack understood. You get what I'm saying? I think Bobby was more naive. And I think Bobby was really trying to do something. I really do. I think Bobby was, was if you were going to look at one of them as maybe, you know, a good person, it would it would be Bobby. It would definitely be him. 
because he was just naive. He didn't understand the in the inning the ins and outs and the inner workings of what was going on in the White House. But he had passion and he really wanted to fucking stop the uh the mafia. And like someone said earlier, they are a bloodline family. They are a, like a a very connected family. Yeah, they go back to Lincoln I, from what I understand. They are and they're actually, very dirty and corrupt. So like you know, I, I like I said, I'm not giving Kennedy the pass that this guy is, but it's fantastic research and it's a really good documentary. I think it's good information. And this breakdown, what I what I'm circling back to is this breakdown of the Kennedy assassination, I think is fantastic. Just as as far as who was there and involved. I think this is a great collection of, of those people. It is. I like his maps and shit too. This is a really good one. And uh it actually had the theory in it that what he settles on is his theory in this used to be what I thought happened until we broke down the slow motion replay of Jackie. And it may be as crazy as she was involved in the assassination as well, but we'll get into that in a little bit. And we'll I retouch too, on that in a second. I too was on team. Um, Ivan Rodriguez, the fucking car porter guy that, was dirty and went back to work and claimed that he was in the sewer the sewer was, shooter yeah i was all about that even his boss called the uh the the local sheriff's office and said listen i think this guy did it because he stinks he's fucking smells like burns and and sewage and shit and he works for me and come check him out and they were like no nah, we got our guy that that's what really got me was that they were like now nah, we got our guy mm-hmm. that's it's like okay they had their patsy Mm-hmm. You know, I think Oswald was an MK Ultra patsy. Me too. And I think he was. They played him and manipulated him and, and and programmed him to park himself in that theater and wait to be arrested. Yep, I believe that too. But let's continue on with this. That's what he's getting ready to do: is break down the Kennedy assassination. I just wanted to touch on it a second. We'll get back to it in just a little bit for essentially using the CIA as their personal hit men. After he found out that Robert Mayhew had sought Sam Giancana's permission to talk to his underboss, Johnny Roselli, about the possibility of a hit on Fidel Castro. Here you have a government agency funded by the American taxpayer associating with the very organized crime racketeers JFK was trying to put in jail for the purpose of carrying out political murders. The president was incensed. Historians have never been surprised that he vowed to smash the CIA into a thousand pieces. It hardly takes a genius to see why the CIA wanted to kill him. What is more, Jack Alston Crichton and the lifelong friends of Alan Dulles, the Bush family, had just recently purchased exclusive access to 15 million acres of Cuba, almost half the entire island, in order to drill for oil. When he came to power, Castro reduced this to a mere 20,000 acres, a colossal investment which now failed and which led to Crichton's CVOVT Oil Exploration Company being delisted from the stock exchange at a loss of $30 million. Crichton and George Bush's friends, the Texas oil billionaires, Clint Murchison and Haroldson Lafayette Hunt, also knew that Kennedy wanted to end their most vital tax break, the oil depletion allowance and their bosom buddy, Vice President Lyndon Johnson, was standing at this time with one foot in jail and the other on a banana skin due to his involvement 
in the corruption scandal now breaking around his favourite assistant, Bobby Baker. LBJ knew his life was finished if Kennedy lived, and he would become president himself if Kennedy died. So his involvement in the plot is hardly difficult to understand. And even more to this, the heads both of the US military and the military-industrial complex which supplied them, exactly the same Nazis who had supported Hitler in World War II, were fully aware that Kennedy wanted to pull out of Vietnam in a move which would have eventually cost them billions in lost weapon sales. This circle of thugs and pirates was completed by LBJ's next-door neighbour, J. Edgar Hoover who had himself invested millions in Clint Murchison's oil business, just like his mafia associate, Vito Genovese. Stepping back to look upon this rogues gallery, it really is remarkable how Kennedy had managed to make an enemy out of every single dirty hood, every corrupt politician and every single Nazi businessman living in the country at that time. It is highly misleading even to see these groups as separate, because the truth is that they were all brutal fascists who saw nothing wrong in killing to get their own way. The question now was, how were they going to get him? Because we must never forget that generals, admirals, mafia dons, intelligence chiefs, corrupt politicians and oil billionaires are only people. None of them wanted to go to the electric chair for conspiracy to murder the president. They knew that they had to put together a plan which could not fail to both kill Kennedy and then cover up afterwards the fact that they did it. They knew that in men like Frank Sturgis, his Cuban assassination squads, and the Mafia hitmen working with the CIA, they had a huge pool of killers to choose from who were ready, able and willing to do the deed. All the same, how could they possibly get to Kennedy? because they knew that, at least in Washington, all American presidents are extremely well protected by the Secret Service. The most important first step was to engage the age-old mafia tactic of finding a patsy. To this end, they turned to George de Morenschild, a very sophisticated exiled Russian count and CIA agent, who was close friends in the old business with George Bush and the Texas oil men. They were aware that they needed someone like Giuseppe Zangara, who appeared to be a low-life, discontented misfit. So they chose a low-level CIA operative, who had been groomed precisely in order to appear to be a low-life, discontented misfit, and Ali Harvey Oswald, who was carefully handled by de Morinchild as he was placed like a chess piece in the Texas School Book Depository. With the patsy selected, the combined heads of the American Nazis now sat down together to discuss their problem. How do you kill a man riding in an open car on a public street in front of hordes of people without being seen? And then, how do you cover up forever afterwards the fact that this was a conspiracy and not the work of a lone nut? The plotters were keenly aware that it was the second question which posed the biggest problem. The professional military men like Colonel Ed Lansdale and Admiral George Berkeley, Kennedy's personal physician, were well aware that there are any number of ways to hide or disguise a sniper behind trees, inside other vehicles, behind windows in office buildings. But this was a plot which had to have an absolute guarantee of success. If a squad of riflemen 
were all to fire at their target at the same time. This would certainly guarantee the man's death. But the subsequent police investigation would instantly realise more than one shooter was involved. A team of gunmen all firing together might actually blow Kennedy's head clean off. A single sniper couldn't do that. So what were they to do? It was during these deliberations that a macabre thought first registered. They would have to control the body after the shooting in order to make sure that all physical evidence available to police forensic scientists conformed to the scenario of a single assassin. And just how in the hell were they going to do that? By way of preparing the ground, Sam Giancana now ordered Richard Nixon's political associate Jack Ruby to keep Oswald snug under his wing, and then to set about hiring the best local riflemen, preferred candidates being men like his close friend Charles Void Harrelson, the father of Hollywood actor Woody Harrelson, who had proven his Dang. hitman credentials by shooting dead dozens of men for money. He then turned it's to his mafia associates, Carlos Marcello and Santos Traficante, to supply the best gunmen from their cities while he shit. himself instructed the well-known underboss, Tony Accardo, to give the Chicago end of the contract to Giancarlo's favourite and most trusted hoodlums, Charles Nicoletti and Milwaukee Phil Aldericio. This pair had to be flown in 1,500 miles to the ranch of mafia hood, Peter Lacavale, and then driven the remaining 600 miles to Dallas. It had been agreed with Giancarlo's and Genovese's oil business partners, H.L. Hunt and Clint Murchison, that every gunman would be paid $50,000 for the hit, and that the oil men would stump up the cash so there was no way of tracing it back to either the mob or the CIA. For their part, Jack Crichton and George Bush were trying to lay the groundwork at the street level with the mayor, Earl Cable the brother of CIA chief Charles Cable, whom Kennedy had fired. Both the Cable brothers were crucially important in the development of the fine details of the plot because they agreed to allow Crichton and his associates George Lumpkin, the Dallas police chief, Lieutenant Colonel George Whitmire and Harry Weatherford to make use of their 488th Military Intelligence Detachment, a privately funded part-time intelligence force which had amongst its ranks many members of the John Birch Society, the Ku Klux Klan, and around half of all the serving police officers in Dallas. See, big, big club. Big club. I just want to check in with you because you know it's getting ready to go into the JFK assassination. The whole so, Woody Harrelson dad thing, I mean, that's, it, it's, what a coincidence, right? There they are again. I mean, it's so many fucking celebrities whose dads were involved with very powerful fucking people in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. It's all the same players always. It's wild. Always, dude. New names, same faces. It's crazy. Well, let's see. Gotta keep that family bloodline pure buddy what he said his dad was cia he was definitely cia connected for sure and if you're connected to the cia you're in the cia yeah yep they don't just chill with people yeah <laughs> what you guys do with that let's just chill it's supposed to be yeah 
see. Nothing surprises me, Joan. If his doctor mm -mm. was involved, I would not be surprised. Do you want me to continue forward a little bit or no? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Let's, let's do You're another down? 10, 15 minutes. All right, let's check it out. The plotters realized this was a masterstroke because it meant they could involved. control the streets and the crime scene, involved. but they also realized that when the shooting occurred, the response of at least half the police on duty would appear to be completely genuine. And yet for all this intricate planning involving, as Sam Giancana later admitted, dozens of men, the American Nazis were aware they still had a problem. Getting the snipers into position and buildings. coordinating their fire by radio was not too difficult. It's something the military do every day. Oh, they're everywhere. But this problem of blowing the man's head clean off had another side to it. Supposing, as can happen, all the snipers missed. How could they possibly legislate for this contingency? You see, being a professional sniper is a lot like being a professional golfer. Everyone knows that, generally speaking, a golf pro on a par 3 will hit the green. But even the world's best occasionally miss by a wide margin, and the same can happen to any rifleman. We can be quite certain that the guiding brains of the American Nazis, Alan Dulles and David Attlee Phillips, in order to cover this eventuality, must have at least considered having one assassin run up to the limousine to attempt a point-blank range mafia-style shooting should the others miss. But then another problem appeared. Supposing their assassin couldn't run quick enough to jump on a speeding car. Little by little, the realisation hit home. The plot could even wind up looking silly and themselves ridiculous. There was only one answer. They would have to control the President's protection, the Secret Service. Marita Lorenz testified under oath that in late November of 1963, she drove from Miami to Dallas, Texas with Frank Sturgis, followed by a backup car which contained a stash of weapons. Travelling along with them were Jerry Patrick Hemming, an American mercenary like Sturgis. Were you ever offered money to assassinate President Kennedy? Directly, on numerous occasions. Two Cuban brothers, Ignacio and Guillermo Novo Sampol, a Cuban pilot called Pedro Diaz Lanz, and his friend, Orlando Bosch. At first, Marita assumed this was to be just another arms smuggling engagement, just there's, like many others she'd been Black on with Bush, Sturgis before. Orlando Bush. However, when they reached their Dallas motel, they were visited by someone Marita had met know, many you times do know before. Obama and the Bushes are related, CIA though, right? agent Look E. Howard show, Hunt, That's crazy. who stayed almost an hour and paid Sturgis with cash stuffed in a very large envelope. This was the evening of November 21st, 1963, and Marita Bush. began to get worried. She knew that President Kennedy was visiting Dallas the next day. Becoming concerned, she pressed Sturgis as to the real purpose of the visit, and when he told her that for this one time it had to be confidential, she decided she wanted out. Marita had no way of knowing that a great number of other people had made similar journeys that day. CIA pilot Tosh Plumley flew several assassins into Dallas Love Field without even being told who they were. From all over the country, radio operators, riflemen, drivers, false ID suppliers like Chauncey Holt and Bernard Barker, and getaway pilots like David Ferry, converged on the city. 
whilst at the home of oil man Clint Murchison. A group of his Nazi friends were congregating to celebrate Kennedy's imminent demise. Due to the testimony of LBJ's mistress, Madeleine Duncan Brown, the mother of his illegitimate son, we now know that amongst these guests were J. Edgar Hoover and his homosexual lover, Clyde Tolson, who stood to lose the millions they'd invested in their host's oil business if Kennedy lived. Hoover also knew Kennedy wanted to replace him as head of the FBI. The two Brown brothers of Brown Brothers Harriman, who along with Cliff Carter, John Connolly and Senator Joseph Yarborough stood to lose millions from lost defence contracts because they knew JFK wanted to end the Vietnam War. Also present were Joseph Sevilla, head of the Mafia in Dallas, and the Mayor of Dallas, Earl Cable, the CIA men who knew the President was serious about smashing the Central Intelligence Agency because he'd already fired Cable's brother, Charles. Having a drink with them was Chase Manhattan Bank Chief, John McCloy, a confirmed Nazi who had shared a box with Hitler at the 1936 Berlin Olympic Games, and Mafia Chieftain Carlos Marcello, who felt nicely at home rubbing shoulders with Sam Giancana's representatives, Jack Ruby, Richard Nixon, and Haraldson Lafayette Hunt. The media were represented by Eamon G. Carter, and the only one who might have felt a little out of place as he awaited his boss was the world-class marksman and serial killer Malcolm Wallace. Late in the evening, Lyndon Baines Johnson finally turned up and briefly went into the party. When he came out to greet Madeleine Brown, she said he was euphoric. Let's go back to that before. When, when Johnson came out of the meeting, uh, what did he say to you? He was so angry. He had a violent temper when he was upset. Well, let's use the, the exact words that he said to you. What did he say he, to you? He, uh, he grabbed me by the arm, and he had this deep voice, and he said, after tomorrow, those SOBs will never embarrass me again. That's no threat. That's a promise. Johnson had clearly been told by the people in that room that everything was ready. The next morning, the president landed at Love Field and was led to his car by Governor John Connolly. As he is driven away, it is immediately apparent that something is wrong. A Secret Service agent, Henry J. Rickber, tries to take up his proper position on the president's limousine, holding on to these handles provided for the purpose, and is ordered to stand down by Emery Roberts. Let's just look at Rickber's reaction again. He is quite clearly like, disgusted. Why aren't they letting yeah. him do his job? I love this guy. And this as the car glides into Dallas, cool. we can now see how the removal of his Secret Service protection has opened the president up to a field of fire from almost any direction. It's plain from these pictures that as the motorcade moved on into Dallas, the Secret Service meant to protect the president remained crowded together on the vehicle behind. While travelling in the pilot car some 400 yards ahead, three men are smiling as they see everything is going to plan. Crichton, Lumpkin and Whitmire have used their influence to remove the military protection which should have been amongst the crowd. And whilst the people lining the parade route are ten deep in places, 
Lumpkin has seen to it that the police have let almost no one into the would-be crime scene. Pausing at the corner of Houston and Elm, Lumpkin is seen exchanging reassurances with one of his men. Yes, he tells him. The hit is on. Glancing discreetly upwards, he sees Weatherford and the best Cuban sniper, Eladio del Valier, preparing to fire. The signal is passed to the other snipers to get into position. Having been let into the Daltex building by oil baron Haraldson Hunt, Eugene Hale Brading unlocks the second floor broom closet. A client of New Orleans lawyer G. Ray Gill, who also represents mafia boss Carlos Morcello, Brading has a getaway pilot waiting, whom Gill employs as a private detective, David Ferry. He opens the window, and as Charles Nicoletti loads his rifle, Richard Kane listens to his radio. Car coming. Get ready. Closing the door, Milwaukee Phil Aldericio guards the corridor with two Cubans, Rolando Mesferrer and Rolando Otero. This basic pattern was established all over the plaza. A sniper next to a radio man, alongside a second marksman who could take over should the first want to back out at the last moment. Each team was then guarded by more assassins, mainly Cubans, who made sure no one interfered with each group. It all sounds quite professional, and the truth is, it was. Sam Giancana's spy in the Chicago police force, Richard Kane, was an electronics and wiretapping expert who spoke five languages. Up on the grassy knoll, with his childhood friend Charles Harrison, stood the diminutive Charles Frederick Rogers, a nuclear physicist who worked in seismology for Shell Oil. He was also friends with David Ferry and the Civil Air Patrol. Up in the Texas School Book Depository, LBJ's psychotic hitman Malcolm Wallace held a PhD and taught at the University of Texas. The Texas oilmen, mafia dons, merchant bankers and military industrialists had assembled the all-time dream team of professional killers. They were there to make absolutely certain their king died, and the two men who in later years would steal his crown Richard Milhouse Nixon and George Herbert Walker Bush smiled from the sidewalk as they exchanged winks with Jack Crichton. There was no way Kennedy could escape now, and they knew it. Arranging his sniper's nest at the other end of the sixth floor, Sturgis was the first to be spotted by Arnold Rowland. I just looking around and we noticed a man up in the window and I remarked to my wife, tried to point him out, and remarked that he must be a security guard, secret service agent. Well, the window then that you're referring to is on the opposite uh, end of the building from uh, where the main entrance to the building is. Yes, it is on the other side of the building. And he had a rifle. It looked like a high-powered rifle because it had a scope which looked in relation to the size of the rifle to be a big scope. A moment later, 15-year-old Amos Ewins caught sight of one of the Sturgis-trained Cubans, Ignacio Novo Sampol. Even more significantly, Richard Randolph Carr, a steel construction worker who was looking for a job in the new Dallas courthouse, which was then under construction, 
stared out from his seventh floor vantage point and saw Malcolm Wallace taking position to fire. Testifying at the trial of Clay Shaw, he gave a minutely detailed description of a very heavy set man in a sports jacket who wore large framed glasses. He could see the man so clearly, he even said his eyeglasses had large ear pieces. America, the home of the brave and the land of the free, was about to discover that it wasn't what it thought it was. As the president's car made the turn onto Houston, government agents who had sworn an oath to uphold their country's democratic principles waited alongside mafia killers to murder their own commander-in-chief. I don't know what to do. I think I should stop it here. It builds suspense. Yes, I, I agree. Yeah, because, you know, got a little bit further to go. He's still got to break down the theory and everything, tell you what happened here. It's fantastic research, though, right? It is. It, it, so that's something for people to look forward to next week. He, he does break it down, who he thinks did it, where they did it, and full maps and all that shit. Yeah. Oh, it it's very in-depth. You know, and I don't know that it's 100% correct, but it is very involved. Just all the people he ties to the area. If he don't have exactly right their roles, you know, I can understand people nitpicking little details, but tying all those people to those places, especially George Bush, who swears he wasn't yes. there. He proves he was. Right. He and was involved. And, and then there, there was witnesses who spotted all the other shooters with um, drawings. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm -hmm. out, like here it is. Yeah. Oh, there's there's tons of evidence that there that to this guy's theory, and I I believe that there was this much going on there. Yes. They, you know, uh, it does look like Jackie did take the final shot, though. I I I do believe all the other stuff is true i think everything he says is exactly correct but yes i believe jackie took the final shot but that's wild that they had it all the way down to her that's the last resort yeah yeah he was no no fucking way you're there leaving was no way street. he was getting out of there nope no and he was like he was full of holes he had two in the shoulder one in the neck the main one uh, up under the chin and, and all those are in the autopsies all in the autopsy reports but, you know, nobody seems to notice. Nobody seems to care. There's like one magic bullet, everybody. It's just it's that they're in control of the narrative. I don't even think it's that nobody noticed that nobody cared. Uh, you know, just like right now, we're the silent majority. They make it look like we don't exist. Right. We are the majority. Cause right. In my daily life, when I interact with people, this is what they talk about. Shit like this. Yeah, and they act like this is, you know, we're fringe and we're crazy conspiracy theorists. And, yep. you know, that's what they, the, the weaponized term they've used to keep the brainwashed. And and it's a small percentage of them. You know, I, you know what I think they've done, really? I think they've flipped the script on us. You know how it would only take like three to five percent of us to unite mm -hmm. and overthrow everything and take control? I think that's all they really need to keep dumbed down and, and brainwashed too. I think they have more than that, but that's about all they need. True. 
true. They need some real people to interact on social media and whatnot and, and be on their side. Yeah, but I don't think they need a whole lot. Mm-mm. You know what I mean? Not as no, many as no. you think. Right. Because it's not that many. They could just there are brain-dead people and... that are just unshakable yeah. NPCs, but it's not that many, I don't think. Maybe that's because I don't live in a city, though. Do you think I think that only because I don't live in a city? No, because um, when I go to work in the city, it's I see I interact with a lot of people, man, and and people know what's up. Yeah, they're more more awake and aware to what's really going on. Yeah, then yep. okay, because they kind of make it look like the city is just nuts. It, no, uh, uh-uh. well, not not the cities out here, anyways. But I mean, that's good. I'm sure when you go to the West Coast, like Oregon and in you know Seattle and in california and shit you know i bet you it's definitely as weird as you see on tv out there yeah, yeah leanne uh those pictures are graphic but yes he was just yeah. just shot to shit and, and it's obvious that it was came from the front and came out the back mm-hmm. didn't come in the back and out the front it, the back was exploded not the front yeah oh and when we break it down we should do that after this is all done with the very next show we should replay our show and still have us like talking like we do during through this movie you know what i'm saying yeah because we can't break it down any better than we did that night but like i looked up what you were saying about obama and bush i had heard that before but Isn't i wanted to crazy? get the details yeah the 10th cousins and then barbara bush and alistair crowley that's interesting that's interesting. it's very likely that alistair crowley is barbara bush's father that's interesting. You've heard that one before, haven't you? I have not. No? Mm-mm. I'll look for a side-by-side of them real quick. But I will say this, that the Clintons' marriage, that was nothing more than just um, an act. You know, I don't think those two ever had sex, ever. Bill and Hillary Clinton? Yeah. Yep. I believe that was just a business I deal. I don't either. That is a business deal. Business partnership. Don't be quiet. I'm Maybe looking some, for the picture. Here, this is this is the only one I found so far. There, there's uh, other good ones, but I'll just quickly go to this one so that we can show it real quick. This is a side by side of Barbara Bush and Aleister Crowley. Oh, but there's oh. evidence that her mother was around Aleister Crowley during a time he was having a sex magic ceremony, which basically were just big orgies where he would have ceremonies and shit. But her mother participated in one of those around the time of her conception. You know. And she looks just like him. Not to give anything away for the future, but I believe we should do a show like this on the children of these, you know, like the Trudeau Mm -hmm. and... We've talked yeah. about that before. Yeah, yeah, that would be a good idea. There's so many. I didn't even know this one, dude. Yeah. So that's a, that's a, could be a big reason why Bush chose her, is she's a descendant of Aleister Crowley. Of course. that's He had to have gotten it somewhere. He had to have gotten involved with 
it's one of the original families somewhere along the line. You don't just walk into power like that. Even not even not even the the original guy George Washington. When you see his story, he had to um, start banging this fucking chick who was the governor's daughter, and they were fucking what would be today billionaires. That's how he got hit into recognition, his power, and all that. He, George Washington was a shitty leader. You know that, right? Like he lost war after war after war, um, leading into the Revolutionary War, like against the French and against um, a, a bunch of mercenary units that they were sending through the valleys and shit. And he would lose them all always. He was like really bad. Red Hubble is Chelsea Clinton's biological father. Yes, yes, yes. Chelsea looks one. just like her daddy. I'll look for that too here in a yes. second. The the Obama but, kids too. Those kids, oh, the Obama kids, those are not theirs kids. They borrowed those kids. Yep. Those kids are not them. And there's there's other kids floating around that'll never see power. They pay them off like um like that that um Clinton kid, the black Clinton kid from Arkansas. And then you also had Billy Jean's kid, Michael Jackson's kid looks identical to Michael Jackson. And both Billie Jean and, and the kid claimed, and her name was Mickey, but they called her Billie Jean on the road. They, they both claimed the son and mom that, uh, no, that's not Michael's kid and this and that. Well, yeah, that's what happens when millions of dollars are involved. That's the type of shit me and you will never fucking ever deal with. Right. Look at that, dude. That's why Hubble... Next to a picture of Chelsea. And she looks like a mixture of Hillary and that guy. I don't know if there's any more pictures here, but let me go back. Yeah, that's her dad. That is her dad. And all the way back, even with the curly hair right there when she was younger, she's always looked like her dad. And there's another side-by-side. That's why I believe the Clintons, Bill and Hillary, have never had sex before. I I believe they are nothing more than a business arrangement. Danny Williams. That's uh, Danny Williams is Bill Clinton's illegitimate black child who has been paid an undisclosed amount of money, and he still claims that he's Bill's kid. He's like, I don't give a shit. I, you pay me, I'm gonna still fucking tell the truth. It's funny. It's like just comes up. It's all you gotta do is search Bill Clinton's son. I know this kid looks just like him too. I know, dude. They're identical twins. You, even when you Google search uh, Obama's uh, kids' real parents, Obama kids' real parents, it pops up. <laughs> it's like they don't hide nothing, you know? This one is going to shock you. Obama kids' real parents. <laughs> right there. It's already there. Is it? it? Yeah, oh, yeah. It's definitely been viewed quite a few times. It's real parents. And I'm, just, I'm not seeing them yet. We're not though. seeing them, are there we? There they are. Oh, they're there. Yep, they're there. Those two right there. And they look just like their parents. The one looks like the mom, the other one looks like the dad. Identical mm-hmm. twins. Meet the parents. Come on. 
Show some class. Right, come on now. <laughs> what do you mean Big Mike isn't the mama? What? You mean men can't have children? I wonder what you get if you search Big Mike. Big Mike. You're killing me. Oh, I'm surprised you didn't get no. Obama, uh, um, Michelle Obama. And that's what Joan Rivers, I don't believe that one, but I don't believe that, you know, that's a conspiracy, but that's what, that is what Joan Rivers said. She said, you don't you believe know, that Michelle Obama's a man? No, no, no. I don't believe that it's a conspiracy that Michelle, that, um, um, Joan Rivers was killed off for saying this, but she said that, that, she, that Michelle Obama's a man. But a lot of people think that she was killed off for saying that. That's what I don't believe is that she was killed off for saying that. She's very big, broad woman, broad shoulder woman. She, masculine shoulders. Look at them hands. Big hands. Big old my hands. No. Yeah, but her shoulders are really broad. I don't know. So there's another I guy. I think she is. Michael he refers something. to him as Mike in speeches, and sometimes he'll slip up and call him Mike. Well, his best friend in college was Michael something. Maybe if you look up uh, Obama's best friend in college, I don't know. But Obama's he, best friend in college. But there's pictures of um, him and this other dude that used to hang around all the time, and his name was Michael something. Um, and, and, it, and so people believe that that is Michelle Obama, and I, I can't disagree. I really can't. The shit literally looks just like her. Right. Well, that'll be something to go into on another one of these. Yeah. But we made it pretty far. We got an hour further in. We made an hour and, and an one minute. Robert just showed up. He's like, dude, when are you guys going to show the movie? Get on with the movie. We're going to take a break for the night. We're getting oh, ready to man. wrap up for the evening, but we'll be back here next Wednesday for part three. But we got through an hour of it. Robert, you missed it all. You must have he fell did. asleep. Well, that's what happens when you're a level one uh, Yankson. Yeah. Free Yankson. Well, you know, he's gracing us with his presence. He's royalty. He's meme royalty. He is. Oh, yeah. Just having him here is like, it's like celebrity wow he, factor. He's one of the bread and circuses in our community. Yeah. People come in, they see that Robert's here, and they're like, oh, okay, this is a cool fucking place. <laughs> he says, no, I was here the whole time. Yeah. Idiots. Yeah, I right. Just, I threw the idiots in there. You guys don't know nothing. No, nothing. Nothing idiots. about nothing. Stupid I'm a proper head. fed. I was spying the entire time. I, I know what I'm doing on my job. You guys yeah. are getting pretty close to some shit, so I watched the whole movie this time. Yeah, Big Mike. I knew it. That's why I thought maybe Michelle would come up when I searched Big Mike. Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> it was just getting good, but that's why you got to come back for next week. And I, I know, but like we're working, guys, and we gotta go to we, got we gotta go to, to bed soon and shit. But it's I, nighttime. It's it's nighttime's the right time, but it's, it's also nighttime. sleep time. You know what I mean? You gotta take breaks every once in a while. This is a three and a half hour movie, sir. It is. But I am very great grateful for this opportunity to be on oh, the show. Yeah. Absolutely, I love it's it. It's fun having you over for this. It's fun being here. It is. So on that note, God bless everybody and have a good night. All right. Well, that was Paul, and this has been Conspiracy Theories and Chill. We've been breaking down everything's a rich man's trick. I have the link in the description. 
if you want to watch the rest of the movie. So for Robert, you can click on that link, pick it up at a minute or an hour 43, and you'll be right where we left off. Or you can just come back next Wednesday and then watch it with all of us when we pick up where we left off. So it'll be right at the Kennedy assassination, and then we'll be leading up to modern times and 9-11. So you guys have a fantastic rest of your evening. Thanks for hanging out with us for Conspiracy Theories and Chill, taking part and all that. I really appreciate you. Come back Friday night for rants. God bless and enjoy the rest of your evening.